midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. The New Testament is the most critically examined collection of writings ever. I mean, <laughs> if the New Testament is true, then it demands our attention. And so the key to forgiveness and reconciliation to God are within its pages, and it also warns of eternal judgment. And so some people claim that it's the Word of God and must be trusted. Others claim it was fabricated to promote people's personal interest. Uh, sadly, especially in America, most people have never read it. They may know you know, a few snappy verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But could they tell you anything else about the context in which that verse was written? What is Paul talking about when he says that verse? You know, many times that verse is used as a motivation to achieve something in life which has nothing to do with glorifying God. It's a, you know, a five foot, 150 pound high schooler who wants to be an NFL lineman and he's, you know, and he's claiming that verse, right? It's not exactly what that verse is talking about. If you have never read the New Testament, I would encourage you to do that. There are several reading plans which break it up into small chunks each day. You could easily, you know, by reading less than 10 minutes a day, read the entire New Testament in a matter of 90 days. And so if you are not much of a reader or that task seems too large, try just reading, just start by reading one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just pick any one of them and read that one. Now, here's a little bear's biscuit for you, and I've got a few of these today, but the Bible app, if you just search Bible app on your iPhone or Android, it has an audio version for most translations. So you can pick your your Bible translation, and then there's like a little little audio emblem. Click on that, and it will read along with you. And so a lot of times I do this, and it just helps me stay focused. I will have my Bible in front of me, but then I'll also have headphones in, and it's like reading the Bible to me. That may seem lazy, but by hearing it and reading it yourself on the page, I don't know, it just it, it works. And also it helps you move along and helps your mind not wander off as much. So, you know, all I'm asking is that you get involved with the New Testament. So over the next several weeks, I'm going to be talking about various aspects of why I believe the New Testament is trustworthy and reliable, and it's the Word of God. And But don't, if, if you haven't read, you know, if you're not currently like studying the Bible routinely, don't think of reading the Bible like like you're reading some sort of self-help book, like you're just going to start reading and then you have to immediately like, okay, you know, what do I have to do to apply this to my life? Just start out and read it just like a story. Just read it, okay? And what was the original author trying to say to the original audience? Just think of it that way first. You know, many times we want to personalize the Bible, right? We Just like the verse I mentioned earlier, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We just want to go to the Bible, pick out a little verse that sounds fancy, and and then that's that's all we read, right? And so just just read it like, like you would read any other story. Or when you get to uh, like Paul's letters and things like that, just read it as if, okay, I am I am getting a look at one guy writing a letter to a group of Christians and just read it that way to start out with. Here's another Bear's Biscuit. I really like this a lot. There, there are readers' editions of the Bible. And what I mean by that is the original text of the Bible did not have chapters and verse numbers and all that other stuff. 
And those are very helpful in some aspects of it. But just to read, there are reader's editions of the Bible. You can get these for Kindle, but you can also like purchase a book. So it reads just like a novel would read. Now, here's a basic outline for today. This is sort of like an intro to the New Testament. So I'm kind of covering a lot of little things. And then over the next few weeks, I'll get into more specific topics. And so today, I'm just going to go over, like, the first thing would be the basics of the New Testament. Then I'm going to talk about Koine Greek and the writing style of some of the early manuscripts. And then I'm going to discuss two erroneous ways to view the New Testament, two errors in, in, in how people look at the, the New Testament. And then I'll give you at the end, like, a preview of things to come, all right? Now, you can always connect with me a few different ways. My email is bearchristianity at gmail.com. And then you can follow me on Instagram at the real bear martin. And so leave me some comments or questions or anything like that. If you haven't left a five-star review or commented on this podcast, then please do that as well. That's how this podcast spreads to other people. Now it's time for a special segment of the show called A Bear in the Woods. This is where I answer a question about everyday life. I thought of this question myself, but it's based on a few conversations I had over this past week. So we have a new Costco that just opened in the area I live in, and it's been a big deal for everybody living around here. It's the biggest Costco in North Carolina. So there you go. Um, So here's the question. Bear, what do you think about waiting for hours to get into a store, such as the lines for Black Friday deals? I think it's really sad to see people fighting over stuff on Black Friday. They likely, just a few hours earlier, were sitting around the table with their family, telling the things they're thankful for, and then flash you know, flash forward a little bit, and they're throwing punches over the newest Xbox, right, for, for $50 off. It's just ridiculous. It's crazy how, how people are. So I'm not a huge fan of Black Friday deals. I've never gotten up and like stood in line for a Black Friday stuff. Now, my wife and some of the ladies in her family, they like going out on Black Friday shopping, but they're hanging out and it's it's not like they get stressed. They have a good time. So I've got no problem with that. Another thing that I really hate is that used to, if you opened a Black Friday store, you know, if, if a store opened at midnight, that was like a big deal. Now, I mean, if you open at midnight after Thanksgiving, you're you're way behind. Most stores now open like mid-afternoon on Thanksgiving Day, which I think is crazy too. I, I just hate that concept of, you know, families rushing through their Thanksgiving dinner but so people can go shopping, right, or standing in line. Uh, so I just, I think it's all crazy. I just hate to see that, that people put so much emphasis on just stuff. Uh, but... The closest thing that I can experience to waiting in a line for something is trying to get on a a ride at Disney World. It's a Star Wars ride called the Rise of the Resistance. So Disney did this thing. I I don't think they do it anymore, but basically you couldn't get in line for this ride. You had to be in the park at like 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was. And you had to be on the Disney app and then you had to like reserve a ticket to get on the ride. And it was this huge thing. I mean, you know, within four seconds or something, all the tickets are gone for the whole day. And I'm a Star Wars fan. So when our family went for the week, we tried, and not just my immediate family, like my wife's whole family. So it was a fairly big group of us. So we tried, and we, we thought we were close. We were nowhere close to getting on the ride. We were way, way late. And so my brother-in-law got up a few days later. We got up at like 5.30. We did an Uber to the park, got in there. We're waiting with thousands of people. None of the stores are open. None of the rides are open. You're just standing in the park before it opens uh, just so you can get on this app. And so 
We're all standing around. And then with about 10 seconds left, now this <laughs> this is a funny story. It was one of them had to be there funny stories, but I'll just share it with you. There was about 10 seconds left and we've all, you know, thousands of us have been waiting for like two hours. So there's, everybody's just talking or whatever. But then as it gets close, everybody gets quiet and everybody's focusing on their phone. There's like 10 seconds left and everybody knows it. But my brother-in-law, he shouts out, two minutes. <laughs> like he, like he's going to throw people off and they're they're not going to pay attention to their phone. <laughs> anyway, we had a good laugh. Now, the sad thing is we did not get on the ride that day. And so we left that park absolutely furious. We were both, we were both ready to drop a nuclear bomb on Disney World. And we did not, you know, we were like, we're never bringing our family back. We just hated Disney World. So uh, anyway, eventually I did get to ride it. That's another cool story, but that's my closest, you know, experience to waiting in a line like that. Uh, anyway, you know, I just think it stresses me out and I hate the way it makes me feel. And so I, I just don't like doing it, but that is just my opinion. And this has been A Bear in the Woods. All right, the basics of the New Testament. Why is it called the New Testament to begin with? Testament could also be translated covenant. And so these there's two main covenants in the Bible. You can think of like the Old Covenant being the main one in the Old Testament, and then the New Covenant is the New Testament. And so uh, sometimes the Old Covenant is called the Sinaitic Covenant because that's when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And so these commandments come with blessings and cursings. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel is chasing after false gods constantly. They set up these places of worship where there is all kinds of prostitution and and just a a wicked uh, religious practices, basically, at, at these places where they're worshiping false gods instead of the one true God, the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. And so they have violated, they have broken this old covenant with God. But there are promises. So like when, when Israel is being taken away into exile by other nations and stuff like that, there are promises that prophets write about of a new covenant. And so one of those, one of those promises is found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And, and it's important to know that early Christians considered themselves part of this new covenant. We'll get into that in just a second. But here's that verse in Jeremiah, behold... And and again, this is written in the Old Testament, and this is a prophecy about what was to come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, again, that's the the Ten Commandments, the, the Sinai covenant, and Israel broke that covenant. And so for this, and so I'm continuing with Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is a prophecy of the new covenant that is coming. And then at the Last Supper in the New Testament, Jesus says this. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so I talked about this in episode four, maybe, 
um, about this is the, the Passover meal that Jesus is having, and Jesus changes a lot of the symbols so that they are now about him. And this is this new covenant. So Jesus is the one who says, this new covenant is in me. In Hebrews 9.15, again, this is in the New Testament, it says, it's talking about Jesus. It says, therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so here's the basics of it. The old covenant is a covenant of like, like the Ten Commandments. That, that's a very basic way of saying it. And we have all broken those Ten Commandments. And so under the old covenant, we deserve punishment. But under the new covenant, we have forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. So when you hear or read New Testament, you can also think New Covenant. So the New Testament is going to be writings about this New Covenant. In the New Testament, there are 27 books there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are all the stories of Jesus' life, just told from uh, four different viewpoints, so to speak. And then there's a history book, that's Acts. So basically, that's like the history of the early church. And then there are letters, and a lot of these letters are written by Paul to other churches or to individuals that are Christians. And then there's you know another group, we'll say general letters, and so this would include letters written by other people, James, Jude, Peter, John. Hebrews is in there. Hebrews, we don't actually know who wrote Hebrews. There's a lot of um, fun theories on that, and I'll discuss that in a later episode. And then Revelation is like an apocalyptic type of book with, with some prophecies. So that's the basic layout of the New Testament. Um, next week, I will discuss how the church decided to keep with, you know these books but not others. And this is called, again, the canon of the New Testament. We've already talked about the canon of the Old Testament. So we'll talk about that next week. And then as far as the dating, when was the New Testament written? There's two, you know, when you're, when you're looking into this, there's two different dates that you've got to, you, you can't confuse, okay? There is a date that the original was likely written, and then there's also the date of the manuscript evidence that we have. So experts in the field believe that the New Testament books were written, and these, again, there's a lot of debate over this, but in general, the consensus is between 40 AD and 100 AD, so roughly 60 years. Now, if you remember, the Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years, a much, much larger gap. And so the New Testament is, is all happening in this first century. Now, there again, there's a lot of dispute, and one of the major dating sort of guidelines is 70 AD, because in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. In multiple Gospels, Jesus predicted this destruction of Jerusalem. And so people that don't, you know, don't believe Jesus was truly, you know, the Son of God and you know, not a prophet or whatever, he was just kind of a normal man— they will use this 70 AD mark and they'll say, well, Jesus so clearly predicted the destruction of Jerusalem that these gospels must have been written after 70 AD. Uh, now, there are lots of other reasons that scholars you know, debate over these dates and stuff like that. And so there, there's tons of other stuff, but that, you know, that's how they're trying to look at it and decide when they were written. And that's why there's so much debate in the field. All right. Now, 
The next little section I want to do is on the Greek language, and that's what the Bible was written in. It's written in a, a language called, or a type of Greek called Koine Greek. Now, my friends and my family know that I am quite the hobbyist. So I get addicted to various hobbies, and I become literally obsessed with them for a certain time, and then I will move on to something else. So here's a list of some of my hobbies over the past few years, okay? Guitar. Now, I did stick with guitar. I still play guitar. Swimming. Art, specifically caricatures. I wanted to you know, be able to be one of those guys at like the theme park that does like the cartoon version of people. I just thought that, that's really cool. So I, I spent some time doing that. Jazz piano. I really just, oh, I, I feel like the, those jazz piano guys are so cool. Uh, I thought about doing like a YouTube or I, we did some YouTube videos as a family during some quarantine time. Uh, biblical Greek. So this is where I, uh, this ties in. I wanted to learn to read biblical Greek. Uh, then I sort of shifted into learning Spanish because I was supposed to go to Costa Rica on a mission trip. So I wanted to get my Spanish as good as possible. Um, and then when that fell through because of COVID, then I went back to Greek. Uh, also, I've thought about, or I tried like writing a novel and usually I didn't even get past the first chapter on several different books and just nothing great there. It's a lot harder than I thought. And then here we are at Podcaster. So <laughs> if you're starting to think, I wonder if he will just up and quit this podcast and move on to something else. That's that's a legitimate question, but I've got a lot of material that I want to cover. Uh, and there's a little more social pressure to stick with it, right? With all these other hobbies, it's just a personal hobby. It doesn't really affect anybody else. So I had zero accountability. Whereas with this, I get to talk to people who are listening and that's motivation to keep going. So I'm really enjoying this. So don't worry. I have no plans of quitting this anytime soon. Anyway, I went through a lot of phases, but there were there was a phase for several months where I would wake up and part of my morning routine included reading a, you know, a biblical Greek textbook, going through flashcards, watching some videos, and then translating Greek passages of the Bible. So it was a lot of fun, and I will certainly pick it up again and, and moving on. Where I'm at right now is basically towards the end of like a intro level Greek, biblical Greek textbook. So I'm on some of the last chapters there, and I'll, I'll definitely pick it up again. Now, the New Testament and the Septuagint, for that matter, are written in what's called, again, it's called Koine Greek. Koine just means common. And so Koine Greek was the common language in the first century. Now, classical Greek is like a fancier form of the language, and many works of antiquity are written in this classical Greek style, like the writings of Plato and, and so forth. And so classical Greek and Koine Greek, it's been compared by experts that they kind of say, well, it's sort of like reading the Bible in the NIV version versus, uh, that would be like Koine Greek, like the common language. Whereas classical Greek is sort of like reading in like the old King James, very, very fancy. Um, and, it, and it's just a higher reading level. And so again, Koine Greek was the language of the commoner throughout the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus. And, and also as a side note, Jesus and his disciples likely spoke Aramaic, not Greek. And so they may have been familiar with Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic, again, most likely. And so you may think, well, if the New Testament was written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic, do we really have the actual words of Jesus? So hang in there. We'll talk about it in a later episode. Now, I mentioned this also in a previous episode, but Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. 
And again, talking about the, this Koine Greek language, it was the best time for Jesus because the Old Testament had been translated into Koine Greek. This is called the Septuagint. And then the world was primed for the message of Jesus to spread throughout the, the known world. What's interesting to me is in Genesis 11, God confused the languages because people were trying to make a tower of worship which would replace God, basically. This is called the Tower of Babel. They believed they could build a tower reaching the domain of heaven and make a name for themselves. Essentially, they wanted to become their own gods. And as a result, the Lord confused their languages, causing people to scatter. But then at the perfect time, working through normal history, as Alexander the Great conquered the known world, a few hundred years before Jesus' birth, this made Greek sort of the it, it, it made Greek the, the universal language, so to speak. God united the world under a common language for the presentation of his son. So everything is primed for the, the, the message of Jesus Christ to spread rapidly throughout the world. And it's because the, the known world, the, this common language, again, not every culture spoke it. You know, all the time, but it was the common language of the land. It, it's sort of like English today, where you you know most places in the developed world, you know, they you can speak English and at least get by. So, a few basics about Koine Greek, and this is just stuff that I learned as I was learning the language. In English, word order really matters. So, if you say Jesus loves Paul, the order of those words make a huge difference, okay? So if you change them around, it completely changes the meaning. If you say Paul loves Jesus, it's the same exact words, but two completely different meanings. In Koine Greek, word order does not really matter for the most part because the ending of the words change to tell you what part of the sentence that word is talking about, okay? So let's let's use the Greek word God, for example. So God is theos. That's where we get the, the term theology, so theos means God. Now, as a disclaimer, this is a major simplification, but you'll get an idea. So theos, when we put that os at the end of it, that's usually means it's the subject of the sentence. So if I said God is love, in Greek that would be theos is love. Now, if we change it to theou, then that is like possessive, meaning it would be translated of God. And so if we say son of God, in Greek, we would translate the God part, son, theou. So see, I don't have to put of theou. I just put son, theou, and it and that, that ou ending implies that it's possessive, son of God. Now, if we change it to theo, that is most commonly translated to God. So I pray to God, I pray theo. But again, in Greek, you could start the sentence with any word you wanted to. You could say theo, pray I, Theo, I pray, but when it's translated into English, it's always going to be, I pray to God, because the ending of each Greek word sort of tells what role it has in the sentence. And then the last you know, basic ending would be theon, and usually this is used for the direct object. And so if I said a sentence like, I trust God, I could say, I trust theon. So most of the Greek words in a sentence are going to have these different endings which tell us what part of the sentence they're taking. And so you could literally write them in almost any order you want to within that certain phrase. And But in English, it'll all translate the exact same way every time. Okay. And so it's a, it's a neat language, but it can be really confusing as an English speaker who's used to having the word order really matter. 
when I was doing like different exercises and translating Greek, that's something I would always, I would always mess it up. <laughs> and, and so uh, that, that was a, a difficulty. Now, an expert in the Greek language, he's written a textbook that, that many students use to learn Greek. His name's Daniel Wallace, and we'll talk about him a lot in other episodes too. But he lists 16 ways you could write Jesus loves Paul in Greek. And every way would be translated the exact same in English. It would that each way, each of those 16 ways in Greek would all be translated Jesus loves Paul in English. So word order doesn't matter nearly as much in Greek. And so when you hear that there are a lot of textual variations, and we're again, I hate to keep doing this, but we're going to get a lot of this stuff more specifically in later episodes. But you may hear, oh, there's all these variants in the manuscripts and stuff like that. If it's a word order issue, it's not nearly as important in Greek as it is in English. Okay, so that's why most of these variants don't even matter, because we can easily still determine what the author's trying to say. Now, another interesting thing about the New Testament is that the earliest manuscripts are written without any spacing between words. And this would make English fairly difficult to read. I mean, you could you could do it for the most part. But in Greek, you know, however, these common word endings that I just talked about, they're all attached to the root part of the word. And so it makes it much easier to read. So when you hear that, you know, all oh, the, you know, critics will say, that, oh, that was written without any spacing and punctuation, stuff like that. But because of the Greek language, you can still determine what, what's being said. It looks kind of weird. So if you, you know, Google image like, you know, early New Testament manuscripts, it, it just looks weird. Like there's no space between any of the words. Um, now, there's two basic types. There's majuscule, or it's also called uncial, and basically it's all caps. So all caps and no spaces. And then minuscule is just all lowercase. So there's, there's different types of text, and there's lots of different reasons that they were written that way. But anyway, so if you're looking up stuff, that you may, may notice that. Now, you can imagine it would be super easy to make a mistake by accidentally skipping a word or a line of text because there are zero spaces. You know, imagine copy, you know, just you're going to sit down and you're going to handwrite the Gospel of Matthew you know, in English, you're jumping back and you can sort of keep up with the, the spacing between words and stuff like that. But if there's zero spaces, it's a little easier to get to get mixed up. And so, again, a lot of these little textual variants in manuscripts are just due to stuff like that. Now, the last thing about the Greek language that I want to teach you is Greek verbs in the New Testament, they often convey a deeper or richer meaning than what we are than what we read in the English translation. And so one pastor I spoke with about learning Greek, he said this, he said, reading the New Testament in English is kind of like looking at a photograph in black and white. And then reading in Greek is like looking at the same photograph in color. So, you know, in, in both, both of them, all the basic information is there, but there are nuances with the color photograph that you'd, you'd never see if you just saw it in black and white, right? Does that make sense? So here's an example. The perfect tense in, in the Greek language conveys an action in the past which still has significant meaning to the listener or reader reading it in their current time. The aorist tense is a, just a basic way of conveying historical information. And so the aorist tense, if you're talking about something in the past, that's the most common tense, verb tense that's used. But this perfect tense can sort of add a little bit of a, a richness to the meaning. And so uh, let me give you an example. When Jesus uses the phrase, it is written, which I've talked about before, 
he's talking about the Old Testament, that is in the perfect tense. It is written. And so it conveys that the Old Testament was written in the past, but it still has authority right now in this conversation. So in that conversation, Jesus is usually debating with Jewish leaders, and Jesus appeals to the Old Testament as an authority by which he and the Jewish leaders are are held to. And so many things have been written in the past, but the New Testament has Jesus using this perfect tense in this situation. It is written when he's, he's claiming an authority in his current day for the Old Testament. Another perfect tense verb is used for Jesus's last words on the cross. Jesus says, it is finished. This is tetelestai in Greek. And Jesus could have used the aorist tense, the basic historical tense, you know, it, it's done. But he uses the perfect tense there, and it carries with it a message which tells the person reading like the Gospel of John that this still has an ongoing effect for all who believe in him, for the forgiveness of their sins. It is finished. It happened in the past, but it still has an ongoing effect for all those who are reading the Gospel of John today. Next, I want to talk about two erroneous ways to view the Bible, and these are from Daniel Wallace. He mentions these in a debate I was listening to. I'll link the debate in the episode notes. Anyway, he says that there's one wrong view is absolute certainty. So some people, they sort of latch onto a a set of Greek manuscripts or maybe even a translation of the Bible. The most popular one for this type of view is King James. Um, but anyway, they, they latch onto that and they say, this is the only inspired text from God. All the others are errors and corrupted, and this is what I believe, and therefore I am absolutely certain of every single word. Now, there are plenty of people who um, prefer the King James Version of the Bible over other translations, and I have zero problem with that. But when you when you say that the King James Version is the only inspired version and that it's it's almost sinful to read other translations of the Bible, that is that is a bit extreme. And this belief is not consistent with the historical evidence that we have of the New Testament. In, in my opinion, this King James Version onlyism is sort of a head in the sand approach, and it can lead to major problems. So, do I believe that the Bible is the inspired order of God? Yes, it has authority in my life. However, I am not going to ignore the fact that different manuscripts say different things. And so if I believe God is real and is working in my life, then I have to accept all the evidence that God has given us throughout history and then work with that. And so a lot more on this in later episodes. But personally, I think we have to avoid this head-in-the-sand approach when we teach our kids about the Bible. I, I, you know, I certainly teach my kids that the Bible is reliable, it's trustworthy, it's the Word of God, it's inerrant, you know, all of those things. But and I'm not saying that we discuss all these manuscript differences and all all this st- details with like our four year old after teaching them the B I B L E song, you know. But we need to educate them about the history of the biblical manuscripts before they get to college and hear all this stuff from a non believing Bible hating professor. Okay. Um, also, if, if any of you don't know what the B-I-B-L-E song is, here we go. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, Bible. All right, so <laughs> there's a little inside look into what's happening at children's churches uh, across the nation on, on Sundays, all right? So absolute certainty is on one end of the uh, of an error view of the Bible, and then radical skepticism would be the complete opposite. 
And so this this would be, you know, like atheists fall on this group. The most popular person, the the poster child, poster man for this group would be Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman grew up in a fundamentalist home, much like what I just talked about above. Uh, in a debate with Daniel Wallace, he tells a story of his grandfather getting upset with modern translations of the Bible, saying that they removed a verse about the Trinity in 1 John. We'll talk about this later, but uh, basically, you know, again, he grew up in, Bart Ehrman grew up in this uh, sort of absolute certainty type of mindset in, in his household. And so when he started going to seminary and and studying the New Testament and involved in New Testament manuscript studies, he realized that there are differences in the New Testament manuscripts, and this started this cascade where he started doubting God, and now he's an agnostic atheist. And so he started out as a professing Christian and then has left Christianity. So he is frequently quoted by anybody who doubts the Bible. Atheists love to quote Bart Ehrman. Uh, he's a he's a best-selling author, and so his most popular book is probably Misquoting Jesus. And then another one that I've read is called How Jesus Became God. I think I've mentioned that in maybe some previous episodes. But um, if you just Google Bart Ehrman, B-A-R-T, and then E-H-R-M-A-N, Bart Ehrman, um, you'll see a list of his books. Now, strangely enough, he is a talented author, and I do enjoy reading his books in in a certain way. Now, I completely disagree with him uh, on a lot of his basic concepts, but he is a talented author and a talented speaker. He's a professor, actually, at UNC. And so if you read a Bart Ehrman book, find a book that's written by a Christian scholar that gives a different viewpoint. There, you know, Bart Ehrman is so popular, his books are so popular— that many Christian scholars will take his book and then they'll write a refutation of that. Uh, one of my favorites is called The Heresy of Orthodoxy, and it's by Dr. Andreas Kostenberger and Dr. Michael Kruger. So I'll leave a link for that one in the episode note. But anyway, there's lots of different books which sort of take Bart Ehrman's book and then talk about some some of the things that he doesn't mention. He is very, very good at giving these these quotes that just blow your mind, like, wow, I, I had no clue. Um, but usually there's there's something that he's leaving out. He he is telling the truth, but probably, or, or usually not the whole truth, right? So if you look into it a little more, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's not as big of a deal as what he's making it. Now, you know, so, so that's the radical skepticism view. So skeptics like Bart Ehrman, they'll say things like this when talking about the Bible. They'll say, early Christianity was this hodgepodge of ideas, right? There were many things being written and tons of stories passed along about Jesus. And the earliest followers were these lower class Aramaic speaking Jews without the ability to write the Greek of the New Testament. Uh, so basically, there were all these ideas floating around. And Christianity, as we know it today, was simply the the winner among all of these competing ideas about Jesus. And so the the, the books that we have, um, they the the winning Christians sort of snuffed out all the other stuff about Jesus. So that's that's one of the skeptics' views. Um, they'll say things like the Gospels were likely written, you know, about forty years or more after Jesus died, and therefore they're full of changes and additions, and the stories are made more legendary just as as time evolved. They'll say we have no significant manuscript evidence which dates back to the first century. It's not until the fourth century that we have a full copy of the Bible in Greek, and so the the earliest evidence of, is full of scribal errors, and there are errors in those copies, and how can we possibly know what the original said? You know, so skeptics will th- say things like that. And so here's the basic premise, right? If an all-powerful God wanted us to have his words, 
Why didn't he do a better job preserving the original words? That's kind of the main skeptical argument. Most of these radical skeptics, if there's any variation in any of the manuscripts, it's it's this idea of oh well this couldn't be this couldn't possibly be from God. So on purpose, I'm sort of building the tension here. If you are a Christian and it was kind of a struggle to hear some of this information, hang in there. I've struggled with all of this too. I have you know, and so that's why I wanted to start this podcast to share the things that I've learned as I investigated why I believe what I believe. And so here's the lineup over the next few weeks. It's all going to be about the New Testament. Next week, I'm going to talk about the canon of the New Testament. Why do we have certain books, and why were other books written you know, around the same time period? Why were they rejected and, and not considered Scripture? Next, the, next, the week after that, I'm going to talk about the authorship, who wrote the Gospels, who, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then the week after that, I'm going to talk about this concept called textual criticism. And so this is a, an academic study of, you know, if these manuscripts say different things, how can we possibly have any idea what the original said? So I'll explain how we deal with these variants in the manuscripts and why we have the Bible that we have today and not other wording and stuff like that. And then the week after that, I will probably do an episode on different Bible translations and pros and cons and that sort of thing. Because uh, I've also looked into that, right? Like, what Bible do I, what English version do I want to study and read? And, you know, what's the most accurate and all that stuff. So, um, so that's kind of coming up in the next few weeks. In conclusion, the first person Satan tempted was Eve. And he asked her this, did God really say that? And this is his oldest trick, you know, and Adam and Eve failed that. When, when Satan tempts Jesus, Satan begins by saying, if you are the son of God, you know, he said, and he says the same thing to people every day. If God really was real, he would do this, you know, insert whatever there. If God, you know, if the Bible really was true, it would be this way, or God would give you this specific evidence. So he makes us question the Bible by asking, did the original authors of the Bible really write this? Did God really say that? It's all sort of tied in to the very first thing that Satan tempted Eve with. Did God really say that? And so why do I believe the New Testament is trustworthy? Hopefully I can show you this over the next few weeks. The closing verse is Matthew 4, 3 through 4, and this is when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. It says this, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 